talking about practical matters in this sermon series. And what we mean by that are everyday things that affect everyone, including Christians, in one way or another, directly or indirectly. Things like technology and marriage, family, they all shape our lives in different ways for better or for worse. And we're attempting as a church to discern how those practical aspects of life fit into our identity as God's people, how they fit into our identity as followers of Jesus. Now, this week we have a new topic, and that is the topic of work. It's been estimated that most adults will spend somewhere between 70 and 100,000 hours of their lives doing some kind of work. 70 to 100,000 hours. That's a lot of time. Now, some of us hear the word work and our ears perk up because we love our work. It's a great joy in our lives. Other of us hear work and we're kind of just indifferent. It's not something that we really enjoy, but it's not something that we hate either. It's just a fact of life. It's just something that you do. But others of us hear the word work and immediately dread the fact that we have to go to work later today or that we have to go back to work tomorrow. But what does the Bible teach us about work? Is work good or is work bad? Is work a gift from God or is it an unfortunate consequence of sin that we just have to deal with? And what does it look like for us to submit our work to the work of God and the cause of Christ? So open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. If you're using one of our Bibles, that'll be found on page 1. And if you don't own a Bible, feel free to take one home with you as you leave this morning. But before we do any reading, let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful that you are a good father. We're so grateful that because of what your son Jesus did on the cross, that we would even dare come into your presence, that we would even dare approach you. That because of your son's sacrifice, we can call you father. Because of your son's sacrifice, you love us, you care for us, you listen to us, you hear our prayers. Our prayers are not in vain. So, Father, thank you for this relationship that we have with you, that you have initiated, that you have brought about. Father, we are just in awe of that. Thank you for this morning. I pray that you would give us discernment, that you'd give us wisdom that you give us humility as we listen to your word and as we, as brothers and sisters in Christ, simply look to discover what it looks like to honor you in every inch of our lives, including our work, whatever our work might be. We love you. We thank you for this morning. We ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Well, we start off with a truth about work that has also been true of every topic in this sermon series so far. It's been true of technology and marriage and family. It's also true about work. And that's this. Work is a good gift from God. It's a good gift from God. Look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. After God creates Adam and Eve, we read, And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Like we talked about in our sermon on marriage, the timing of a passage can be really important in how we understand it. 
And here again, we see a passage that occurs before sin enters the world. And what we see is before sin enters the world, God gives humanity work. Specifically, Adam and Eve are charged to have dominion over creation, to subdue creation. In chapter 2, verse 15, they're told to tend and work the Garden of Eden. Before Eve comes along, Adam is given the task of naming the animals that God has created. And all those things that we read about are different forms of work. They are jobs. They're things that require thought, require effort, require obedience, and even physical labor. All before sin enters the world. And going back even further, God himself is a worker before Adam and Eve ever enter the picture. God does the work of creating. He not only brings things into existence, but he gives the raw material of creation order and purpose. God is a worker. And in Genesis, all of God's work is good. In the beginning, work is presented as a gift from God for the good of man and for the good of creation. Victor Hamilton writes, the point is made clear here that physical labor is not a consequence of sin. Work enters the picture before sin does. And if man had never sinned, he would still be working. Eden certainly is not a paradise in which man passes his time in idyllic and uninterrupted bliss with absolutely no demands on his daily schedule. Work is, in and of itself, not a bad thing. Work is not some necessary evil that we just have to put up with until God fixes everything. However, that doesn't mean that work would be exempt from the effects of man's sin. Originally, work was a good gift of God. But then when sin entered the world, work changed. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. After an Adam and Eve's disobedience, we read God speaking to them, talking about the consequences of their rebellion. Verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Verse 17. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So after Adam and Eve's sin, there are certainly undeniable and terrible consequences. And one of those many consequences is a change to the way that work works. One of Eve's primary tasks that only she could do, that Adam was physically unable to do, was to bear children. And for Eve, the corruption of sin meant great pain in being fruitful and multiplying. For Adam, God specifically mentions that the ground he now works is cursed. Eating from that ground will not come without pain. It will not be without thorns and will not be without thistles. The work of providing for himself and for Eve and for their children will not come without sweat because of sin. The good work that God gave Adam and Eve, it becomes something else because of sin. This good work becomes toil. Toil. 
Now, I'm sure you've experienced toil, right? Toil is that kind of work that just seems to be meaningless, seems to be unproductive. It's completely unenjoyable. That's the kind of work that Adam and Eve now have to deal with. Male and female are both affected by the problem of sin. Their work becomes their toil. Their tasks become their hardships. And ever since sin entered the world, work, this good gift of God, has been subject to the corrosive effects of sin. We see it in tons of different ways, don't we? In our own lives, often our motivations to work are less than pure. We find ourselves working not for the glory of God, not for the good of man, not for the good of creation, but instead to feed our greed or our status or our desire for self-sufficiency. Because after all, if you make a lot of money, who needs God? If you know all the right people, if you have a good resume, who needs God? If you're high enough up on the ladder, who needs God? We work so hard. So that we wouldn't have to sink to the level of needing someone's charity. When charity is the very essence of what grace is all about. I'm sure we all have stories of the idolatry of work. One of the other effects of sin on work. That time when work becomes more than just a means of survival. More than just a means of provision. It becomes the thing that we worship. At the expense of things that truly matter our relationships to each other, or our family, or to God. And again, because of sin, work so often simply feels more like toil. Maybe that's your situation right now. You dread your work because it just feels meaningless, unproductive, and generally unenjoyable. You look at your work and you think that in the big scheme of things, not even God could make your work have any value. That's how much of a form of toil It really is. But here's the good news. The Bible doesn't end at Genesis 3. God wasn't finished with his work and humanity wasn't finished with theirs either. God would continue working to reconcile and redeem humanity and reconcile and redeem creation. And in the same way that God gave Adam and Eve work to do, God would continue to call humans, people like us, To work alongside him. Work is a good gift of God, but it was affected by the problem of sin. But the good news is that God is redeeming work. He's redeeming it. God began inviting people to join him in this work, not because he couldn't do it on his own, not because he wasn't strong enough to do it on his own. He could have done it on his own. But God in his grace gives us the privilege of working alongside him. God allows us to participate in his work. God works through people even like us. We read stories about how God calls Abraham to pack up everything and go where he tells him to go and do what he tells him to do. Well, that sounds like a lot of work, doesn't it? Because it is. We see God call Moses to return to Egypt and confront Pharaoh. He calls Joshua to lead the Israelites into the promised land. He calls the judges to deliver God's people from the consequences of their own idolatry. He calls the kings to rule over God's people with justice and equity. He calls the prophets to remind Israel of their identity as God's chosen people. He calls John the Baptist to announce the coming of the Messiah. 
He calls Paul to tell the Gentiles that even they can be reconciled to God because of what Jesus has done. God didn't need all of these people, but God allowed all of these people to participate in the work that he was doing. The Bible is filled with story after story after story of God inviting imperfect humans to participate in his work. But the beauty of this is that the greatest work wasn't left to you or me. The greatest work was accomplished by God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God the Father sends Jesus the Son for the greatest task, obedience unto death, even death on a cross. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, God the Father raises Jesus the Son from the dead. But then after that, God continues working. He sends the Holy Spirit to those who do not believe in the person and work of Jesus. He sends the Holy Spirit to change hearts and change minds and help sinners bear fruit in their words and deeds. And because this work has been accomplished by God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, because that work has been accomplished, there is now meaningful and productive and joyful work for us to do, even in a fallen world. And even to this day, God is calling you and me into his work. Most obvious example, of course, is the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We read that passage and we think, man, that's a big job. And we're right. But remember... God has done, and God continues to do, the heavy lifting. Jesus said that he would be with us even to the ends of the age. Our job is simply to proclaim what we know to be true. That Jesus was born, and Jesus lived, and Jesus died, and Jesus was risen, and Jesus ascended, and Jesus will return. We simply announce it to anyone who will listen. That's the work of the Great Commission that God has called us to. But it's not just us as individuals. God has called the big picture church for their own work. The big picture church's job is to give people a glimpse of who God is. To be salt and light in a world that is dark and bland. And this big picture church... All of the body of Christ together can do things that simply aren't feasible for us to do as individuals. The church can do large-scale works of serving the poor and comforting the hurting and confronting and addressing evil and injustice and relieving suffering. And even works of the Great Commission. And finally, this work that God has called us into, it's a response to our salvation. I wouldn't be a good Protestant if I didn't mention that this is a response to our salvation. We read passages like Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 8. Paul makes it very, very clear. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. You didn't save yourself so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We were not saved by our works. 
We were saved for good works of God. In the words of F.F. Bruce, our works are not to secure salvation, but our works come as a fruit of salvation. So with all that being said, we have some solid biblical theological foundation for work. God himself is a worker. God created humans to be workers. Only sin corrupted God's good gift of work. And throughout the Bible and throughout history, God has calling people into his work. And that invitation is still extended to us today, to you and to me. But of course, getting practical, how does that, pun intended, work? How does that work? What does it look like for regular people like us? People living in a regular place with regular jobs, regular forms of work. What does something like this look like for the person working in finance or the medical field or selling insurance or retail or the stay-at-home mom or someone working at a restaurant or a coffee shop? What does it look like for them? Well, that's what we're all working to discern together. We're discerning together how our work, whatever it is, fits into God's work. After all, we can't just all quit our jobs and devote ourselves to full-time ministry or evangelism or missions work, although maybe God really could call you to do that. You never know. But we do see that work has dignity, and God can use very different forms of work for his glory. One of the many contributions that Martin Luther made to the body of Christ was reminding people of the dignity of their work. Luther gave the famous example that the farmer or the milkmaid, those people who in his time were doing the seemingly most mundane work you could imagine, even the farmer and the milkmaid could bring God glory through their work. Their integrity in their work mattered. Their joy in their work mattered, even if the task itself didn't seem like it would change the world. If nothing else, Luther's contribution was valuable because it showed that someone doesn't need to work in a church or have some impressive theological education to bring glory to God through their work. You can bring glory to God in whatever work it is that you're doing right now. The mechanic, the manager at the grocery store, you can bring glory to God. One thing I think that's important to consider is how we as Christians talk about calling. You ever heard that phrase before, calling, I'm called to do this, I'm not called to do that? Well, sometimes I think we overuse that calling because it seems like no one's ever called to clean the toilets. And it seems like people are always called to warmer climates and higher salaries. So sometimes we overuse that word, calling. But at the same time, God really does call people. God really does call people like you, and God really does call people like me. But it's also okay to acknowledge that your work and your calling, those things may not be the same. And again, that's okay. Maybe you look at your work and it definitely does not feel like a calling from God. But maybe your work gives you the freedom to pursue your calling in other ways. The book of Acts tells us that Paul was a tent maker. Now, was making tents Paul's calling? No. That wasn't his calling, but it was part of his work. Tent making gave Paul the means to pursue his true calling of planting churches 
and preaching the gospel. Simply put, I would challenge you to have a realistic view of your work. Your work might not provide all the things that you wish it did. Some sense of purpose or some sense that you're doing something bigger than you. Well, maybe work isn't meant to provide those things. But your work can give you the freedom to pursue what does offer those things. And that, of course, is Christ. I'd also challenge you to look for ministry opportunities in your work. Of course, you'll have to be conscientious of how to do ministry at work in a secular environment in a way that isn't loud or obnoxious. But your work can be an avenue to love your neighbor. If your coworkers or your boss know you're a Christian, then the quality of your work, the attitude with which you work, can leave a positive impression of your faith. And if nothing else, your secular work may lead to ministry opportunities elsewhere. You can take some of the skills and knowledge and experience that you've gained at your secular work to benefit the body of Christ, to serve the kingdom of God. And know this, that your work for the kingdom, your work for God as a follower of Jesus, it doesn't end. There is no retirement in kingdom service. Now, our work for Christ may take different forms as we grow older or as our health declines, as situations in life change. But our work for the kingdom that we've been called to doesn't end. We don't retire. I think of Pat Russell. Pat Russell is a woman in her 90s at Northridge, just up the road. She's a wealthy woman. She's a widow. She's retired. You'd think she doesn't really have a care in the world. She can just kind of coast for the rest of her life. Well, not really. Pat Russell decided to start a Bible study that meets on a daily basis at Northridge. Her life has changed. Her health has changed. Her circumstances have changed. But even in her age, she still views herself as a kingdom worker. I think of someone like Jeanette McLaughlin, who maybe you know, maybe you don't know. She's been coming here for a little while. But Jeanette doesn't even know all that many people here. And yet she's already begun sending cards to encourage people. That's kingdom work for her. I think of Aaron Walker working behind the scenes for the good of the church and the benefit of the kingdom of God, even though it so often goes unnoticed. My point is this, that no matter what kind of work you do, your work matters. Discern what it looks like to submit your work to God's work, to the cause of Christ. For some of us, that's working with a new attitude. For some of us, it's leaving work behind that truly can't bring God glory. If it's a work that is directly intertwined with sin or deception or injustice, maybe that's something we need to leave behind. Or maybe it's starting a new work entirely that does bring God glory. I'd also encourage you to be reminded of the place that work plays in our lives. Don't use it to feed sinful desires. Don't make it into an idol. If you do, you might fall into the same trap that the preacher of Ecclesiastes fell into. At the end of his life, as he stepped back and looked at all he accomplished, as he looked at his resume, his track record of everything he did, he said, you know, it's all vanity. It's all striving after wind. Don't make your work into a god. Because it is not a good god to worship. And don't forget the work that God has done for you. 
that God sent Jesus, his son, and is working through the Holy Spirit at this very moment to redeem and reconcile and sanctify sinners like us. And I'd also encourage you to look forward to rest. Because there will be a day when God will finish his work of bringing his kingdom about on earth as it is in heaven. A day when Christ will return. A day when toil will simply be no more. We look forward to that permanent Sabbath. Not a day where there will be no work at all. But rather all the work that we do has meaning and purpose and joy. When toil will be no more. I pray that as we leave here, as we prepare for whatever works it is that God has put into our laps, our homes, our jobs, our neighborhoods, our schools, that we would simply pray about what it looks like to bring our work into line with God's work. That our work would simply become another ministry where we can bring God glory, where we can point people to Christ. But I also pray that we never, ever, ever forget that our work matters because of the work that God did for us. The work that Christ accomplished on the cross. And I pray that we would keep our eyes fixed on that as we go to whatever work it is that God has laid out for us. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for work. We're grateful for work that allows us to have clothes and have food and have water and have shelter. Even though it can be a challenge, even though it can leave us exhausted or frustrated from time to time, we are blessed if we have work. Father, we pray for those who don't have work right now. We know how much of a challenge it is to go without work and and how quickly you come to appreciate work once you lose it. So, Father, I pray that you would open doors for people to find good work that meets their needs and honors you. And, Father, I pray that even though our work certainly matters in this life, that we would keep it in its proper place. That we would be reminded of the work that has eternal value. The work that your son did on the cross for us. God, we thank you for Father's Day that we can call you Father. We're thankful for earthly fathers who, while they're imperfect, so often mean so much to us. So, Father, I pray as we leave this place, as we go to wherever it is that you call us to go, that we would view those as opportunities to work for your glory, to point people to the work that you've accomplished. We love you. We praise you. We ask all these things in the name of your son, Jesus.